So this series, um, the pastoral team, we dreamed up this series after much thought, discussion, and prayer, and it came out of that need that our generation, we need to understand that our narrative is connected to the grander narrative. Um, And often, we have that question, what does the Israelite story have to do with my story? And at times, I'll be honest, it feels like we bit off way more than we can chew, because seriously, all of the Old Testament in six weeks is maybe not smart, but we're being obedient. Um, But our hope and prayer is that God is speaking to you through this series, um, and that it actually inspires you to go home and check out these stories in your Bible, on your own, or with others. So one of the points we're trying to drive home is that throughout all of the Israelites' journey, God pursued them. He chose them, he chased after them, and even when they kept turning away and caused God to burn in anger, he time and time again, he rescued them. He never stopped pursuing them. And today he continues to pursue us. He pursues us, um, I like this phrase that the Jesus Storybook Bible uses, but walking, walking never stopping. And it's a, it's a fuller per, pursual, no, pursuing, because we have Jesus and Holy Spirit too. But we as a church, we as a people of God need to understand that it's not a one-sided pursuing. It's not just us, per, or God pursuing us, but we also need to respond and pursue him. Um, and Abraham said yes to the call, but I wonder, was there like a, I don't know, Babram or Dabram, before Abraham, who God had called, and he's like, you know what, that's, that's too big. I'm going to say no. And maybe he missed out his chance. I'm not sure. But that's integral to our story, is that it's not just God pursuing us, but we respond by pursuing him too. So today we're going to look at Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And I want to highlight um, one thing about God we can learn through each book. And one way that the Israelites responded or didn't respond and how, uh, what that means for us today. And I, there's way more than, uh, this is way more than what's in the books, but these are the things I feel like are what are on God's heart for us. Um, and actually, before I jump into Joshua's, have you guys heard of the Bible Project? So good, right? So sometimes... It is hard to see the forest for the trees. No, is that right? It's hard to see. Yes, because you're so focused on the small things in front of you, it's hard to see the big picture. And I really like what the Bible Project does. They have these short, snappy videos that give a really good overview and break down um, each book of the Bible. And so it's, it's a really good tool to have in your tool belt when you're studying the Bible. Um, you know, just like a roadmap. We need to be able to tell where we're going. We're so... We use almost use Google Maps too much. We've lost our sense of direction, if that makes sense. I miss those days when you had to open the map and go to section E, F to find 104 Avenue. But you got the big picture that way. Um, Bible Project, in a more relevant way, does this. So I really highly encourage it. Um, So we're going to watch just a little bit of that intro to Joshua. So if you can start the video, that would be great. We got a new program, so we're figuring out the kinks. 
The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other... That's okay. You're doing great. <laughs> the book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died, and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the promised land. And then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites. And so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes. And then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in and we'll see how all of it flows together. The first section begins right. with Moses. Was that good? Yeah, helpful? Um, and they go through every book in the Bible, and they're constantly releasing new videos, too. Um, they're great. I highly recommend them. This is not to replace reading your Bible, though, okay? It's just a tool to help you. Um, let's see. Let's go. Oops. We're going to read from Joshua 1, um, actually 5 to 9, yes. So it says, and this is God talking to Joshua, no one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them, turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Isn't that good news? So here, how many times did God tell Joshua, be strong and courageous? Three. That's a lot. Why do you think Joshua needed to hear it? Why did he need to hear, be strong and courageous, three times? Um, and actually, he heard it a fourth time. Later on in the chapter, in verse 16, um, it says, They answered Joshua, we will do whatever you, you command us, and we will go wherever you send us, da 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 be, So Joshua, be strong and courageous. And that's actually some of the tribes talking to Joshua. So... I think there might be a little lesson in there for us. Um, Proverbs 18 says, the tongue has the power of life and death. And we have this awesome authority and privilege and honor to use our tongues to bring life into those around us. So church, 
be strong and courageous. Um, now I think, I'm just guessing here, Joshua is told four times to be strong and courageous because the task at hand is pretty scary, pretty big. And he has, um, I'm going to highlight four things he has up against him. Number one, Joshua is now filling the super big shoes of his leader, Moses. The Bible talks about Moses, um, that there was never a prophet like him. And he knew God so intimately that when he died, God himself buried Moses. Sounds unreal, right? Uh, number two, Joshua is leading a group of about 600,000 men. And that, com that figure comes from a census that they took in Numbers. That's in Numbers, right before they crossed the Jordan River. Um, but that's just men. So including women and children, that could easily be 2 million people. So now, um, if you guys have gone through a leadership transition... You know, in a company of 20, 30, that's already pretty big news, but now he's in charge of 2 million or so people. I think I would need some strength and courage. Number three, he has to go conquer a land that is full of large cities that are surrounded by these tall and strong walls and people who are very large. And remember, Pastor Angela last week talked about how they felt like grasshoppers. They felt so puny um, when compared to the giants in the land. And number four... This is just my thinking, but um, I'm pretty sure they didn't have a well-trained army, right? He has a group of the kids of nomads who had wandered in the desert for 40 years. Maybe they did some fighting and training and all of that, but how good could it have been when you're wandering around in the desert? And it's not like they came from fighting people. Before them, their parents were bricklayers or brick makers in Egypt. They were slaves. So... Um, the odds are not stacked towards him. Is that the right use of a phrase? Or against him? The odds are stacked against him. So four times Joshua is commanded, be strong and courageous. And this is, it's a good question to ask how. How, how can he do this? Is, is it like just a, uh, you know, you really hope and wish and boop, it appears. That would be great. But um, it doesn't work like that. Strength and courage that here God is talking about is one that comes from beyond him. And it comes because God has given him promises that go along with these commands. So in verse 6, it says, be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land. So he's assuring Joshua, yeah, I know Moses and I were tight. We were good. But you are the one I have chosen to lead these people. Be strong and courageous because I have chosen you. Uh, verse 9 said, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. It's like an emphasis, another emphasis of be strong and courageous. For the Lord your God is where, with you wherever you go. Um, if we could carry that promise with us wherever we go, think of all the things you could do. And his command also comes with the means to get there. Verse 7, it says, Be strong and courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate them, turning either to the right or to the left. So he doesn't just tell him, um, be strong and courageous because of my promises, but he also tells him, do these things so that you will be successful and prosper. So God does not set up Joshua for failure. He's not giving him this insurmountable task and saying, okay, Good luck, little guy. But he actually sets him up for success here. Now, there's so much good stuff we can talk about, but for the sake of time, um, I'm going to jump into what does God reveal about himself 
to the Israelites in the book of Joshua. Okay, I think I'm just going to skip. He is the giver. So time and time again, we see that he is the God who gives. And now the Exodus is all about God saving the Israelites, bringing them out of Egypt, providing for them while they wandered. And in Joshua, we see God making good on his promise to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, now, if you were Joshua and God said, okay, go and have this land, but you look at the land and it's not empty for me to move into. There's actually giants there. You would need some strength and courage. Um, so we go on to the first gift that God gave them, which is the city of Jericho. And in Joshua 6 verse 2, it says, But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. And then he tells them how you're going to take the city. That's where they march and they blow the horns and they do all that. And then the walls just fall down. And then they go and take the city. So the Israelites, they've been hearing the promises of God so long. I'm giving you a promise then. I'm giving you a promise then. All this. But then at some point, I'm sure they thought, okay, how's it, how's it actually going to happen? But then after this massive victory, um, it must have been incredible. I'm just trying to imagine what they felt. So they're on a high, I would say. And then after some other battles, the Israelites gained some notoriety. And to the point where some of the northern kings in that land of Canaan, they... Um, banded together and formed this big giant army to try to fight them. And the Bible describes this combined army that's fighting the Israelites in Joshua 11 as a vast horde. With all their horses and chariots, they covered the landscape like the sand of the seashore. Now, does that phrase ring a bell in anyone? Who, whose people was supposed to be as numerous as the sand on the seashore? The Israelites. But they see this army... They have horses and chariots, and they're this trained army, and they're so vast that they look like sand. Um, but what does God say to them? Do not be afraid of them. By this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them over to Israel as dead men. Oh, did I tell you Joshua's kind of gory too? <laughs> um, and then later in the chapter, God also says, this is chapter 13, I myself will drive these people out of the land ahead of the Israelites, so be sure to give this land to Israel as a special possession. So God clearly gave to the Israelites, and he is the giver. But it's not enough, because earthly give, gifts, even big ones like cities and territory, are nothing when compared to the gift that would take away the sin of the world. And so God had more in his plan, and he would go on to give us his greatest gift, which is his son. But more on that later. So what was the Israelites' response to God's very gracious and generous giving? Now, a lot of the Israelites' journey, although there are things we can learn from them, sometimes there are more things we learn what not to do. Um, because you think as, from a giver, your job would be to a receiver, would be to be a receiver. Um, in Joshua 7, verse 1, we see somebody who didn't receive, but he actually took. And it says this, But Israel violated the instructions about the things set apart for the Lord. A man named Achan, sorry, it's the guttural, I don't know, Achan, I think, had stolen some of these dedicated things, so the Lord was very angry with the Israelites. Now, this takes place right after the huge victory at Jericho. Achan 
stole something that actually belonged to God. And because of that, um, something bad happened. So, and I'll tell you, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. So Joshua and all the other Israelites don't know that this has happened because Akan, he hid it in his little tent or wherever it is, in the ground, I can't remember now. Um, and then they went on to their next battle, which is to conquer the city of Ai. Ai. It's pronounced Ai, I believe. Um, and so Joshua sent some spies there, and they went there, and they saw, um, you know what, Ai, not many soldiers. No need for all our men to fight. Just send two or 3,000 of them. So Joshua sends 3,000 men into this battle to take over Ai. And remember, they're coming off of that huge victory at Jericho, and they get their butts kicked. Um, the Bible says they were soundly defeated. And so how does Israel respond? In chapter 7, verse 5, five, it says, The Israelites were paralyzed with fear at this turn of events, and their courage melted away. So eventually they um, draw lots, and they do the whatever, the, however they did that thing, um, and they find out that Akan is the culprit. They stone and burn him and his family, and then God gives them the city of Ai. All right. Now, what should have the response been? Rather than taking, if you have a giver who wants to give you a good gift, um, the right response is just to receive. And that goes for us today, too. Just receiving with hands open, with hearts of gratitude, not comparing what your neighbor got, um, but rather celebrating all that God has to give to his children, trusting that he is the giver of all good gifts and that he knows what people need and when they need it. Um, so it's not up to us to decide the gift. It's just to receive and not to take. Now when um, things don't go the way you thought or thing, you don't get what you want when you wanted it, whether that's a spouse or a baby or a job or security or health, when things don't quite turn out the way I thought they would, um, and these days, I don't know why, but when you hear of a new cancer diagnosis, this really is a kick in the spirit, right? Um, I have a moment, sometimes very long moments, um, when, like the Israelites, I'm paralyzed by fear and can, can literally feel my courage melting away. And that's when we all need God to whisper or sometimes shout, depending on how down in the dumps you actually are. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you always. All right. So that's why we need these stories, um, to remind us that God is the giver. He has been, he is, and he will continue to be. So on that note, I'm actually going to call up my friend, Sonia. Um, oh. Something about being up here. <laughs> it's all good. Um, we need stories in the Bible to remind us to be strong and courageous, but we also need the stories of our friends to inspire us to be strong and courageous. So I'm just going to ask her to share a bit. Yeah, you can do that. Okay. Got me? Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Sonia, and uh, I was born in Ottawa and raised there. Um, 
I lived for five years in London, Ontario, <laughs> and, um, for school. And then I ended up here in Vancouver for more school, where a friend brought me to New Joy. And I met Tyson at home group. And we got married. <laughs> you should go to home group. <laughs> and here we are, yeah. <laughs> Um, how about you tell us what was your favorite TV show growing up? Oh, TV show. Or book. Oh, I love the Little House on the Prairie books. Oh, yeah, very forever, good. ever. And ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you guys didn't know, uh, Sonia and her family actually foster babies. That's a special calling. So can you tell us a little bit about how you got into it? Um, sure. Or what sparked... What, what began that journey? Yeah. Um, I've always been interested in it um, my whole life and assumed that maybe one day we'd be called to do it when our children were older. But one day when uh, Rosie was a baby, I was at the public health unit and I met an older lady with a baby and I, we were chatting with her and she told me that she's a foster mom mm -hmm. and that her and her family have been doing it for years and years and years. And um, the more we chatted, she just shared that um, her heart was that uh, a lot of these families are getting older. They've been doing it for 20, 30 years, mm -hmm. and they really need new young families in the community to step in, uh, take that role. And I don't know, it was kind of a, a jarring moment. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, I think a, I'm sure a lot of us can relate to feeling called to do something, but not quite having the courage to get over that hump of you know, taking the first step or the 10th step or whatever it may be. Um, what helped you to not just make it a thought, but turn it into an action? Mm. I think after that conversation, I couldn't get the thought out of my mind and I started doing research. And when I was pretty sure that God was calling us to at least look into it, I felt like, well, in my life, I guess, I felt that whenever I felt God was calling me something that it was kind of a matter of obedience, I guess, of saying yes. And um, sometimes it's too scary when you look right to the end of the goal of what you're thinking of. But yes. I felt like in this situation, God was saying, just take one step at a time mm -hmm. and, and then continue on. So, you know, going to the information section or meeting up with a social worker, doing mm -hmm. the paperwork, doing like a home, home thing, and then sign the paper. And then, and then before you know it, you're like, oh, there's <laughs> like a baby in our house. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I know you're not fostering now, yeah. but at the time when you were fostering little babies, just really little babies, you had three kids. So life is tough already, mm -hmm. but I'm sure on top, of uh, on top of all that fostering, there were some really hard days. Sure. What helped you stay the course? Um, I was really thankful for our community. I felt like a lot of people encouraged us. They um, cheered us on. They brought us food, clothes, that kind of thing. Um, but day to day, not even like with the foster babies, to be honest, they were so sweet and cute. But even day to day <laughs> with our own kids, driving crazy sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like um, the good days are days when the, I keep the Holy Spirit right here. Mm -hmm. And I need him all the time, just asking every little question and, and turning that question towards him. Because my own logic or my plans, they always kind of never work out in the end. Yes. Is there anything else you would like to share with us? Um, I think maybe if faced with something 
big or um, you're not sure about and scary, it's always good to first look back and remember how God has been faithful to you, mm. like count all those things. And it really reminds you that no matter what, like he'll be with you. Just take one step. That's good. Thank you so much, Sonia. So we all um, have stories to share where God has been faithful in our lives. And there's, we all have that one next little step we can take. So um, thank you, Sonia, for being strong and courageous and sharing your story. Um, their family is doing something incredible. So thank you for that. All right. Jumping into Judges. On that note, sorry for the rough transition. Judges chapter 2. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. The Israels did, Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshiping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. Then the Lord raised up judges to rescue the Israelites from their attackers, yet Israel did not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves by worshiping other gods. How quickly they turned away from the path of their ancestors, who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge over Israel, he was with that judge and rescued the people from their enemies throughout the judge's lifetime. For the Lord took pity on his people who were burdened by oppression and suffering. But when the judge died, the people returned to their corrupt ways, behaving worse than those who had lived before them. They went after other gods, serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now, just warning, here, warning you here, if you've never read Judges, this book is not bedtime reading material. <laughs> it's actually prime nightmare material. It's violent, bloodthirsty, and very disturbing. So read with caution. But still read it, um, just not to your kids yet. <laughs> the book begins with Joshua's death, and right from there, there's this downward spiral of the Israelites' relationship with God that goes from bad to worse, and it looks something like this. They're good and in peace while they have a good leader, like Joshua and some of the other judges, but then that leader dies, and then they forget, and they sin, which for them looks like intermarrying with the people they weren't supposed to have any relationship with because God knew they would be tainted by them, which causes them to worship those other gods, um, which at that time, a lot of it, or some of it, involved child sacrifices too. So these evil practices that God wanted them to stay away from, they just kind of got complacent and said, oh, we don't need to kick out all the people. We'll just let them be our slaves. But then sure enough, they start to intermarry, intermingle, worship their gods. And then those people oppress them and cause them great suffering. And then so in their distress and in their very deep pain, they cry out to God. God raises a rescuer or a deliverer who frees them, usually after some really bloody battle. And then it's back to good times while that leader's around. But then the leader dies, and then they sin, and so forth and so forth. It's a, it's a pretty awful <laughs> story. Um, and it actually, it doesn't end well. It ends worse than it started. The last verse says, In those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. <sighs> um. What can we learn about God from Judges? And I think the thing that he wants us to highlight today 
oops, sorry, is that God is the rescuer. He rescued his people out of Egypt, and in Judges, he keeps rescuing his people, even though they seem like knuckleheads with really, really bad memories, um, which actually, on, in reflection, could have been a testimony of the bad parenting, because remember, they are into child sacrificing now. Um, but really, these judges could only rescue Israel from their outer conditions of slavery and oppression. But there's only one rescuer in the Bible who can deliver us wholly and completely from the inner slavery of our hearts. And I need some Sunday school kids to give me the answer, which is Jesus. So how should we respond? Judges, for sure, um, doesn't have exa many examples of what we should do. They have lots of what we should not do. Um, we should not forget what God has done, not just for our own life, but for those before us and for generations come. Um, don't disobey God and his commands. You know, these days we live in a world of kind of this hyper watered down grace where everything's permissible and then we get to decide, oh, what's beneficial and all that. But God's laws are actually there for a reason. And we have to remember Jesus never came to abolish the laws. He came to fulfill them so that we may have life and have life abundantly. So, um, yes, Jesus is our friend. He's cradling the lamb and all that. But he's also this very, very holy God. Um, we need to be aware of that. So we learn that from the Israelites. Um, and we see in Judges that the Israelites and really all people, we're, we are created to worship. And the question really isn't, will you worship? But it's who or what will you worship? And the Israelites show that if it's not God, they're going to worship a pole for crying out loud or some awful God who wants them to sacrifice their kids. Um, they would have done good to remember how at the end of Joshua, he actually gave them a chance and said, what will you choose? As, and he said, as for me and my house, I choose to serve the Lord. Um, and the people said, yes, we choose to serve the Lord. But the very next generation forgot all, about, uh, forgot all about that. So really, the appropriate response should have been for Israel in the light of God's rescuing to worship, to be worshipers, to be worshipers of God and God alone. And that goes for us today as well. Um, and God had warned them, do not deviate to the left or to the right. And when I thought about that in today's context, um, I'm borrowing this, this word. I guess he made up a word. Um, his name is, it's a weird name, Nir Ayel. He wrote a book called Indistractable. I don't know if it's good, I didn't read it, but I just heard about the book from a podcast on uh, Dr. Caroline Leaf. And um, this is what he says about distraction. The best way to understand what a distraction is is to understand its opposite, traction. Traction means to pull you towards an action with intent, that is to go where you wanna go in order to achieve something you would like to achieve. A distraction, on the other hand, is the opposite. It takes you away from where you want to go or what you want to achieve. It takes you away from your intent or target. And I feel like our society, we are so easily distracted. And it doesn't help that there are people paid big bucks to try to figure out ways to distract us even more. And of course, we, it's so easy to get sucked into that. Um, but first, we need to make sure we know what our intent or target is. 
Um, and secondly, we need to ask, is there anything distracting me from my intent or target? So we all know reading the Bible is important, but when it comes down to it, what distracts us from doing that? We all know praying is so important, and yet we're super easily distracted from doing that. And this doesn't just apply to you and your families, but for us as a church as well. Is there anything that's distracting us from our intent or target? And yesterday, I'm not sure if you guys know, but the leadership team, we met for a vision workshop, and we're working through things like this. Um, what are some of the intent or target that God has placed on our church? And we need to ask, what are the things that are distracting us from that? So with God as our rescuer, the appropriate and really the only response is to worship and to worship him alone. And we need to heed these disastrous lessons we learned from the Israelites and judges and be indistractable worshipers as individuals, as families, and as a church. All right. Last but not least, Ruth. I need a sip. So Ruth chapter 2. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. So for time's sake, I'm going to assume you've read Ruth, um, and if you haven't, it's just four chapters, and it's actually a good bedtime story, so maybe tonight. Um, so what do we learn about God through Ruth? Did you catch that God actually really isn't in the story of Ruth? Um, not like he was in Joshua, where he talked to Joshua, gave him commands. And then in Judges, he was actively battling on their behalf and doing those things. But in Ruth, he's actually a very behind-the-scenes character. Um, but we know he's there and he's orchestrating everything from the famine that caused Elimelech, what a tough name, Elimelech to take his family out of Judah and move to Moab and then caused one of his sons to marry Ruth. And then from there, caused another famine in Moab that took Naomi and Ruth back to Judah. Only God could have orchestrated a crazy story like that. And she doesn't, Naomi and Ruth don't just go to any field, but they go to the field of Boaz, who is their kinsman redeemer. And just for time's sake, I'm not going to go into that. Um, I can talk to you about after, if you want. Um, the characteristic of God that is really highlighted here is redeemer. He has a plan to redeem his people, um, and the plan began with Abram and Sarai, and it, it was a specific calling on a specific people, but it's so cool that he weaves foreigners into this story. So he's not just, yeah, I, I've called this people, but his heart to plan to redeem the world was to reach people through this people. And so even in the Old Testament, we see foreigners being weaved into this very special story. Um, God may not be mentioned in Ruth, but the root word for redemption is mentioned 23 times. And so what do we see? Um, Boaz redeems Ruth, 
and he points to the greater redeemer. Boaz is just a man. Um, his story is great. He said yes to his calling. Awesome, all that. But really, he points to the ultimate redeemer who would redeem us from the famine that's in our hearts. And in saying yes, Boaz gets to be part of this line for Jesus. And we see that in Ruth. So what's our response to be to this, to a redeeming God um, who has this amazing plan? And we're all part of that. Um, there's so many things we can pick up from Ruth, like loyalty, that where you go, I go line. That's such a good line. Um, generosity to foreigners, to widows, to orphans. Um, I really like that line from, actually, I don't think it's Disney created it, but from Frozen 2, when Anna is in that cave and she thinks everything's very, very dark, and she realizes that she has to heed that voice, which was her dad's voice, and just do the next right thing. Um, that's a really good, and I think it's similar along the lines what Sonia was talking about. So those are things we can learn from Ruth. Um, but I want to highlight something. It's a term I'm borrowing from positive psychology. And it's this term called flourishing. You may have heard it. There's a book called Flourishing. And positive psychology defines flourishing as this. Flourishing is the product of the pursuit and engagement of an authentic life that brings inner joy and happiness through meeting goals, being connected with life passions, and relishing in accomplishments through the peaks and valleys of life. So that's flourishing in a very positive psychology sense, which is great, um, but it's only a little bit of the picture because we know, as kingdom-minded Christians, that there is no flourishing without Jesus Christ, without the work of the Holy Spirit. There is no true flourishing because it affects every area of our lives, not just the, that stuff, but the spiritual, the physical, mental, emotional, all of that is encompassed in the flourishing that God wants to redeem us for. Um, it allows us to read passages like Romans 8 and see that we can flourish because we're God's children. Do I have that here? Yes. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Isn't that awesome? But God's heart to see us flourish lets us keep reading, Romans 8. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. So life with Jesus, I'm sorry if I'm disappointing you right now, but it's not just about glory. It's also about suffering. And it's not just a meaningless suffering that the world goes through. Although sometimes it seems like there's a lot of that. Because there's hope. Because who has overcome the world? Jesus Christ has overcome the world. So flourishing, I think in a kingdom sense, means living in the tension that we get to share in his glory and his suffering. It's not flourishing despite his suffering. Our flourishing includes glory and suffering. So there might be seasons when you experience more glory than suffering, and then there are others when you feel like the suffering is overwhelming. But how can we get through it? And this is my call for us as a church. Yesterday was a really good reminder for me. How do we get through all of this? 
this flourishing, especially when there's suffering. We do it together. God has called us to be together. And we do it with joy. James 1 says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. So church, we need to let God be the giver, the rescuer, the redeemer in our lives, in our families, and in our church. And we need to respond together by being receivers, not takers. Receivers who trust God to give us what we need when we need it. We also need to respond by being indistractable worshipers. Worshipers who worship in spirit and truth, and we don't deviate to the left or to the right. We need to be indistractable in our worship to Jesus. And we also are called to be flourishers who live in tension. We share in Christ's joy and his suffering, and we do this in freedom. And we can respond this way with strength and courage because we have the promise of God, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joshua. He is with us always. So I'm going to call up the worship team. Um, and I just, how about we just close our eyes and I'll give you a moment. And just ask Holy Spirit, how do you want me to respond today? might be bringing to mind a time that you took rather than received. He might be bringing to mind the things that are distracting you from worshiping freely. He might be bringing to mind times you chose glory over suffering. Whatever he's bringing to mind, um, let's respond rightly and in freedom because Jesus has set us free and he has broken every chain. So church, you can sing, you can repent, you can write it down, you can draw, you can pray, you can weep, you can dance, you can laugh, you can dream, you can shout. However you need to respond today, let the Holy Spirit set you free from whatever has been holding you back or blocking you or distract you. Whatever it is, let all your fears be drowned in his perfect love. Plato said, necessity is the mother of all invention. And I think sometimes we don't get creative in our response because we don't our, allow ourselves to feel need, which really all points to our need for God. So wherever you are in your walk with Jesus today, start with this confession. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you to be the giver in my life. I need you to be the rescuer in my life. I need you to be the redeemer in my life and in our churches. Okay.